Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 54. We are more than a week post-election, is that? Oh yes. That right? That's amazing. We survived this long, so that's something of an accomplishment. Congratulations. To you too. Um, yes, so I'm, uh, I'm wearing a bandana, and one could take that to be a um, response to the fact that COVID is now very much again on the rise, but it isn't this time I'm just wearing it because I'm I'm feeling uh, you know in kind of a bandit mood. A bandit mood, in yeah. Bandit now mood. it would make no sense for you to be wearing a bandana in our home with the four of us and our friendly quadrupeds uh, in order to avoid COVID, unless one of us had been exposed, in which case um, probably we should be being more careful than this. So yeah, bandit, huh? Yeah. So you want to talk I'm, about that? Well, I I don't know. I guess it's been kind of a brutal week on uh, social media, and unfortunately social media is playing a larger role in our lives as a result of the um, reduced activity in the world and increased fears of this new wave of COVID. Um, I will say, as long as we're on the COVID topic, there is um, lots of gearing up for what sounds like it might be a renewed, uh, I hate the term lockdown, mm -hmm. right? I think it's actually a bad term, a renewed um, quarantine, also not a good term because we're talking about keeping people who are healthy from interacting. But in any case, there is, um, I think, a tension between the political dynamic that has unfolded around COVID and the fact that there are effectively teams, which there shouldn't be, and the question of what the hell are we going to do about COVID. Now, it may be that this new vaccine is, um, is the silver bullet, but I have to say um, we should have done the quarantine thing right at first. We should have done it much more intensively for a short time. And to the extent that we are now talking about that, I hope that people who've become very skeptical about interventions will consider the possibility that for our well-being going forward, collective and individual, that it may be that a brief, intense period of suspending non-essential activity might be the key. Well, I suspect that you and I actually at this point come down somewhat differently as to what the appropriate response societally would be. Um, what we're about to see here in Oregon is there's uh, Governor Brown established something that she called a pause for two weeks. Uh, I don't remember what all the specifics involved in that were, but it involved backing off of some of some of the things that were open. And you know, we we never, as I assume everywhere, but I'm not actually sure, we we never became fully open. You know, our kids haven't seen the inside of a classroom since March. You know, all all of this, and you know, there's, there's of course no no live events, no music, no theater, no sports. Uh, swimming pools have been closed. All of this, um, but she's. In, I don't know, it's three days from now, there's going to be a two-week, something more than a pause. I don't think she's using the word lockdown, uh, but in which, once again, there's no in-restaurant in dining. Uh, all the gyms are going to be closed. All the museums are going to be closed. And um, so far, what I've said you know, may make sense, given that Oregon, like so much of the country right now, is experiencing a, a surge in... In cases, although interestingly, um, the deaths are not keeping a pace, right? The the CFR seems to be, the, the case fatality rate seems to be changing the longer it is that humans are interacting with this thing, as we would expect, as we talked about back in March, April, May, when we were talking a lot about COVID. For multiple reasons, yeah. both because we're getting better at dealing with it and because there may be an evolutionary transition between us as hosts, which will be slow, uh, and in the, the virus itself, which would, could be quite rapid. 
Right. So it could be becoming less virulent, which would allow it to stick around with humans for longer, you know, effectively become something that we were more willing to just have a sort of background level noise. Um, and, you know, and, and of course, there's also the real possibility, and some people say this is herd immunity, but I think this is a misunderstanding of what herd immunity is, um, is just that, you know, the, the people who were most susceptible both to getting it and to experiencing quick death from it um, have largely already been affected. And so the people who are getting it now may well have long-term negative effects, um, the full extent of which we have no way to know yet, uh, but they are perhaps less likely to be the ones to get it and die quickly because it is already affected those people, that, that part of the population. Especially since we see a correlation between uh, susceptibility and severity. Yeah. Um, so yes, you would imagine that this thing would, would pick off people who were vulnerable for whatever reason first, right. leaving a less vulnerable population. On the other hand, the numbers of people who apparently are positive for this at the moment are pretty staggering. Oh, it's huge. You know, so Oregon experienced more than a thousand new cases a day two days running at least this week, which you know, Oregon has always been interesting throughout this pandemic in that while California and Washington were epicenters in many regards, Oregon was actually among the lowest, uh, had among the lowest number of cases in the country. And, um, also tellingly, uh, despite the amazing number of protests, uh, and continuing amazing number of riots that have been happening, depending on how you count every day or nearly every day since the end of May, um, those don't seem to have been attributable uh, to uh, super spreader events or, or rising, you know, even, even clusters of cases. And, you know, to this point, the point that we've been making from the very beginning, there is scant evidence that this virus transmits effectively outside, that airflow and um, boundary layers are key to understanding what it is that you are likely to um, to, to need to think about in order to stay um, healthy. And maybe not 100% never having been in contact with the virus, but very low dosages of this virus may in fact provide a small level of inoculation against getting sicker. Yes. And um, I will say, I think what we were in intuiting and interpreting from what we were reading early on has been borne out almost entirely. The mm -hmm. exception being we were afraid like everybody else that fomites, the surface transmission, mm -hmm. was going to be a big deal. Turned out it's not a big part in this case. Yeah. Um, so I uh, early on decorated uh, most of our outdoor doorknobs. I, I, I bought and applied copper tape just figuring, well, we're going to wash our hands, but also copper uh, viruses and coronaviruses in particular are known to die faster deaths on copper than on stainless. Uh, and so copper is a, is a good antiviral and antibacterial surface, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that is a necessary step here. Yeah. But the, I think the important lesson as I see it is that a, a lot was deducible from the high quality information. And there was a lot of low quality information circulating with it. But if mm -hmm. you paid attention, um, it was possible, you know, what percentage of a highly effective vaccine is the, what percentage in terms of worth is a high quality model of how it transmits and what you can do to not eliminate, but reduce the chances in each and every instance. In other words, um, if you get into a car that somebody else has been driving for whatever reason, um, or you get into a car, you know, if you're using an Uber or something like that, 
all the difference in the world rolling down the windows and making it effectively a high volume space. Even if the person has been coughing out COVID, you can clear that volume very quickly. Yes. And so- Because it doesn't seem to land and rest on surfaces very well. Not that it doesn't ever happen. Or it doesn't get transmitted once it's landed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So there's, you know, and we also specifically said, you know, as, as folks on the right typically were arguing that these protests were going to cause a massive wave, we specifically said maybe not because yeah. high volume spaces on the other hand there were things that went in the other direction like shouting yeah. and you the know. few times that we went down there you're seeing the number of people who were shouting in each other's faces I'm like okay let's get out of the line of fire of the right. shouting right right well and also you know um i don't think almost anybody was paying attention to it but being on the move right mm-hmm. the, the, what we learned from the rapidly emerging data on the topic was that a healthy person exposed briefly to a cloud of COVID doesn't tend to get sick. It's only when you're in prolonged exposure, which of course makes cars ultra dangerous, planes very dangerous, rooms somewhat dangerous, especially if people have been in them singing or stuff like that. Um, well, I will say, so, you know, we are not, our plan was not to talk about COVID today. So I do not have any of this at my, at my fingertips. And I do want us to go to where sure. we had talked about going, but, um, it does seem to me that there is um, pretty good evidence at this point that planes have been made much more safe than uh, than people have imagined. In fact, I've had two different people um, who've been on planes recently uh, tell me that both from the research they did in advance and just their lived experience, right, their experience of being in the airports on both ends and the plane in the middle was that the plane, everyone was being careful, if we are to believe that the HVAC on board, or I don't know if it's called HVAC on a plane, but you know that the filtration on board is as good as we are being told it is, and everyone is wearing a mask at all times, that the planes seem um, pretty safe, whereas the airports themselves do not. Now, when I first heard this, I thought airports are really big volume spaces. Yep. There is an awful lot of space to- High to, ceilings and high, other things. High ceilings. So actually airports don't seem like they would be uh, particularly dangerous to me. But in both of these cases, anecdotes, um, the, the it was both women. They said, as soon as we got off the plane, there were people whom we had been, I, you know, two different, two different situations who I had been traveling with who ripped off their masks in the airport and, uh, and were, you know, other, you know, either because they needed a smoke or they were whatever it was, or because they just thought it was insane that they were having to wear a mask such that suddenly in the airport itself, which also presumably is less focused on how perfect their air filtration systems are, uh, is, are maybe more, in fact, more dangerous than the actual plane rides. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So my sense is that a good model, which isn't that hard to convey once you figure it out, it's hard to figure out what the model is at first, but a good model is worth some large fraction of a vaccine. Maybe it's 25%, right? That the amount you can do to just limit the number of places in which you could even contract it is pretty high if you're vigilant about it. Depending on how good the vaccine is, it could be worth considerably more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. And it's a lot less risky, that's for sure. The things you do in order to Mm -hmm. prevent this are safe. Right. Um, Although, okay, so, you know, again, this this was not going to be the the stuff we were talking about today, but... um, one of these women I was talking to this week, who, who we know somewhat, um, not very well, um, came to me and said, I've been meaning to ask you guys, and she just happened to reach me and not not you, you know, as biologists, what, like, 
what do you think of the vaccine? Like, is it, I'm hearing from anti-vaxxers. I'm hearing from people who are, who are saying they won't take it under any circumstances. Is it dangerous? Would you be worried about a vaccine that was pushed through so fast? And, you know, we have not talked about this actually. Um, what I said to her was, uh, I'd far prefer to take a vaccine that had, um, gone through all of the most rigorous testing. There is no time for that. I do not think that the way in which that this vaccine is is has the possibility of being less effective than it should is likely to send it into the territory of being dangerous. I I think it is likely to be less efficacious than it is supposed to be, rather than more dangerous than a more reliably tested vaccine. What do you think about that? Well, hey, this is a perfect segue into exactly what we were going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say one thing I know for sure is that we're damn well not going to be allowed to talk about it the way we need to talk about it in order to do this properly. Right. We're going to be expected to belittle the public and tell them a fairy story about safety in which their concerns are the result of wild-eyed fever dreams, yada, 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 and the adults have tested this thing, and if we say it's safe, it's safe, and all of this is complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. Now, the vaccine will have gone through testing, okay. A, I don't trust the testing, right? I don't trust the testing because I've seen what happens with drug safety testing. And when somebody, in this case me, tries to raise the alarm about a glaring flaw in that system, the bell doesn't ring. Mm -hmm. So what don't I know about vaccine testing? Who knows, right? (laughs) Um, I would also say that there is a second layer of informal testing that we know didn't happen here, which is if a vaccine emerges and it is given to people, then time passes. And it is not a good way of figuring out whether something has happened. But over time, a pattern mm-hmm. will emerge that something about the vaccine we didn't know has occurred. People who've had it are showing this symptom, something like that. Right. In this case, there just simply hasn't been enough time. There hasn't been time for the longitudinal studies, longitude referring exactly to time in this case, that we would normally uh, assume was necessary. Right. And um, what's more, in this case, uh, and I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but um, my understanding is that this vaccine is, a, is of a very interesting and I think highly unusual type. Which I is don't to actually say, know anything about it. Well, This is the Pfizer vaccine we're talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I heard was, and in, in a high quality conversation, sophisticated people who wouldn't be uh, jawing off about this without uh, having done some work. But okay. what I understood is that it is an, an mRNA vaccine. Right, which I believe means the M that, stands for messenger. For, right, that doesn't give a lot of context, but well, a particular type of RNA. You've got DNA, mm-hmm. which is made into a template, which is RNA, which is a close relative of DNA. That mRNA is then sent to a basically a molecular machine called a ribosome, which turns it into protein, which is the active form. Right, and so. A, this is interesting because the thing that the coronavirus does is mm-hmm. basically hijack the cell above the genome. It doesn't integrate into the genome. This yep. is a mistake I made on one of our first live streams and people corrected me. You thought it was me. a retrovirus. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and that's so the mistake you're talking that about. That was the yep. mistake I, I yep. made. Yep. But the, well, it turns out that this coronaviruses are interesting in the sense that they uh, travel above the level of the genome. They never interact with it. They hijack the ribosomes and send the messages with the They're epigenomic. Right. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So in any case, a vaccine that does the same trick um, 
seems like it might actually be quite safe. On yeah. the other hand, what we don't know about the situation might be larger than normal because this isn't a variation on a common theme, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know. No one does. I mean, I guess the danger potentially is what other mRNA does it go after? Um, well, there's all of the upstream danger. In other words, mm -hmm. um, you can trigger the immune system to do things at the level of antigen, you can trigger the immune system to to be forewarned about particles that actually are hostile before it ever sees them. Mm -hmm. Right, that would be a typical way. So, like a typical mechanism for a vaccine. Right, mm -hmm. you would take either broken up pieces of dead virus or live virus that isn't pathogenic, and you would put it in the system. The system would then do what it does normally, which is recognize oh, there's something unfamiliar here. It must be an enemy, and it would learn to go after it. And then at the point that the real pathogen shows up, the system is already primed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's typical. This is a very different mechanism. And so yeah. um, very, you know. Uh, but I, yet to, I, I haven't heard. All, all I've heard about the mechanism is it's somehow engaging the mRNA, not what it's doing. No, no. It is mRNA. It, the vaccine is mRNA. If I understand this correctly, and boy, are we going to get some corrections if I don't. Yeah. Um, that it is mRNA. And then what? Like what, what? Well, so the ribosomes transcribe mRNA when they run into it because they're primed, mm -hmm. you know, that's their purpose and yeah. the stuff comes out of the nucleus. So this mRNA is going to uh, come into the system, trigger ribosomes, and they are going to produce proteins, which- That do what? Um, well- that's a good question. Do they prime? So that's that's the part that I don't get. I don't get how plugging new mRNA into your system that then gets ribosomes to print new protein deals with the coronavirus. Well, it right? could like be. How, this protein has to have some particular effect on the coronavirus over here. So we just I, that's that's question. the black box. It's a, I don't have a so good connection. We to should yet. dig. We should dig this up to the extent okay. that it is possible to do it. But you know, it could be that it is producing components of antibodies. So. Antibodies, mm -hmm. for example, are proteins that have sticky, basically sticky pads on them, and those sticky pads land on uh, antigens that they match, and they can do all kinds of things, including gum up pathogens, so those pathogens can't mm -hmm. access the surface of cells and things. So, so I don't mRNA know. could be causing the ribosomes to produce proteins that are antibodies, as opposed to a more common mechanism of vaccine, which is give it, give the body a little bit of antigen itself, the actual virus, either dead or alive little pieces, such that the body is prompted to create those antibodies. Well, but that was going to be my other guess, was that maybe it's producing antigens that are resident on viral particles, and thereby basically the vaccine, in some sense, is being produced inside the cells. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if if a ribosome produces an antigen found on a coronavirus and the immune system then sees it and recognizes it as foreign because it's not in the library of self, then that could prime the system. So anyway, uh, definitely we should dig to the extent that it yeah. is possible I had, to find I out. I had no idea. How I, had, this works. I, had, I had heard nothing except Pfizer's got this vaccine that they're hoping to get rich on. <laughs> All right. So yeah. now let's... And, well, so I, I will say um, that when this when this acquaintance of ours asked me, I prefaced my, um, you know, investigated in terms of I'm an evolutionary biologist, but not knowledgeable with regard to this, these particulars, answered to her with, we will have our family vaccinated. If I, unless there is something that I do not understand yet about 
um, there being an increased risk of danger from this sort of vaccine uh, than a vaccine that might not be very effective uh, is is one that that we should be taking. Well, uh, I fall out quite differently here. Yeah. And the problem is to have the adult conversation is potentially to trigger a failure in the game theory realm that people rightly fear. Mm-hmm. But the problem the is... The difference between individual decisions and public health. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Here's the thing we're not allowed to say. My mm-hmm. God, wouldn't it be terrible if this was true? That the sweet spot is for everybody else to take the vaccine and you not. Therefore, you don't mm-hmm. get the risk of the vaccine, which has to be rated as substantial just based on the unknowns, based on the fact that there will be no one on earth who has had the vaccine a year ago. And so we don't know what it does a year out. Right. So if everybody took the vaccine and you didn't, you get the benefit of their immunity. But nowhere close to everybody's going to take it. Right. So then the game theory... I mean, effectively, this because, you know, this this is one of the things <clears throat> that um, Trump really failed at so badly early in the coronavirus uh, pandemic, which was polarizing it, mm-hmm. polarizing the response to it, as opposed to saying, here's what we're going to do, and, you know, maybe we'll have to do something else at some other point, right? Um, but turning us into star-bellied sneeches and sneeches without with regard to masks and now vaccines... Um, has made it such that the, it's not possible to assume that you would be the only person in your community who wasn't vaccinated. Right. So there's no way. Right. But uh, the, so there's a game. Look, the problem is that the game theory is relatively straightforward. Right. The more people who are vaccinated, the less um, your being vaccinated actually matters to your own immunity. Assuming that the thing works. Right. Mm-hmm. If the thing works. The more people who are vaccinated, the less you need to be vaccinated in order not to get it because other people around you will not have the pathogen in an active form if they've been vaccinated. As people register that and they decide to play the game and avoid the vaccine, then the number of people who've been vaccinated goes down, the risk of getting the disease goes up. And so you get into this very ugly equilibrium, right? Which is what the anti-vax catastrophe, shall we call it, is about. Mm -hmm. Is there is a... Uh, fear about vaccines and people who are sophisticated about understanding the nature of the the game recognize that those who opt out are in effect um, exposing everybody else to greater danger and saving themselves on the risk. Of, of course, it's also true, though, that just as early on the mask discussion was insane, right? Yes. Masks provide no safety whatsoever. This turns out to have been a political decision, mm-hmm. right? And then masks are about you protecting other people. Right. What? Then why? No. Yes, that is also true. But of course, the masks are going to protect you as well. So I see a similar sort of analysis possible here with regard to vaccines. The anti-vaxxers can be like, nope, too dangerous. I'm And if, if they're sort of savvy anti-vaxxers, they're going to argue, well, I'm going to get my benefit from everyone else being vaccinated. Well, but there are two, there are two ways, of course, uh, that you can be um, safe from the disease, at least two. One is not be exposed, and you don't be exposed by being safe and so and physical distancing and wearing a mask when you're in the presence of others inside and all of this. And a vaccine is a second way that you can be protected that also comes with risks that we cannot fully know, but that you cannot get any other way. Right. So what I would say is in the case of the masks, the the game is exactly the same, but for one thing, which is that the cost of the masks is very, very low for most people. And you and I disagree on this. 
Well, so no, I've, it's very, very low at the level of, let's say, safety. Now, there are people for whom mm -hmm. it carries a safety risk, and there are, you know, I mean, look, you're reducing the effectiveness of a system that is built to exhale into the world directly. You are reducing the effectiveness. You are causing CO2 at the very least to build up at a higher rate. So there, it's not like there's going to be zero effect. But you're talking entirely about an anatomical and physiological risk. You're talking, and so over in vaccine space, that is where the risk is, right? Entirely. It's entirely about in and of the body. Yeah. And the risk from masks for people who are otherwise healthy uh, from mask wearing is is very low, exactly what you just said. Yeah. Um, but there, but we are as you know, and this and this is our our drumbeat, right? Yeah. That, that humans, like a few other species on the planet, are so much more than just our bodies, and it is all evolutionary. And the fact of walking around not being able to actually exchange meaning by looking at other people's faces, and uh, and you know. And having initial interactions immediately made painful and suspect because you're walking on a trail in a park and people leap out of the way because they see you're not masked from 12 feet away, even though you're outside in nature. Uh, it, there, there is simply not enough nuance uh, around the discussion. And you know, it's, I think it's very similar, right? And um, in both cases, you know, pro-mask, pro-vaccine, but those aren't sufficient categories, right? right. Pro-mask, when it is under those conditions where it is appropriate, and most people don't understand what those conditions are, and outside, you know, I am, I am perfectly comfortable, but I don't like the looks that I get once I'm outside of the range of the HVAC at the supermarket immediately taking my mask off. Yeah. And having, as I walk through the parking lot with my groceries in the cart, having occasionally people glare at me. No, sorry, I'm outside and I'm going to breathe the air. Okay, so this is in, in some sense a perfect prototype that you and I did not settle on in advance, but this is exactly the conversation. Both mm -hmm. sides are stupid here, okay? Mm -hmm. To the extent that we have a dangerous virus, that we have misunderstood the hazard of it as hazard of death, which is lower than we thought, but that there is a much greater hazard of brain damage, uh, heart damage, et Lung cetera, damage, yeah. mm -hmm. right? That um, there is reason to use a mask where a mask is effective and there is reason to minimize mask use, right? Not to signal with it when we're, for example, outdoors where things are quite safe still. And again, that could change, but it hasn't yet as far as we mm -hmm. know. Yep. Um, so in any case, the problem is there is nowhere for most people to stand because the reasonable position is not allowed. Right. And, um, sorry, asterisk from way back, Governor Brown's order that's about to send us Oregon into two weeks of whatever she's calling it, it's not the full shutdown that we had in March, April, because a lot of the retail businesses are still allowed to be open just at limited capacity. Um, but among other things that are closed is gardens. Why the hell are they closing gardens? Yeah. Unless, <clears throat> unless they can make an argument for it's the workers, except, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, someone behind plexiglass taking tickets is, you know, the only the only person who needs to be there at the time. Why are they closing gardens? Right. Especially at a moment when we've got the, you know, where the windshield of the continent and the fire hose of the Pacific is on us. And if you could manage to get outside and enjoy something, you should absolutely do it. Yeah, for reasons of mental health, if nothing else. Yes. So And so th this this is my point about actually the you know the, the mask the mask analysis is unnuanced and the idea that well there's you know what is it going to hurt you 
No, let's take a more expansive view of, of, of harm, actually. Let's move it beyond the physical and the physical health and into mental health and social health. And I mean, I think it was Nicholas Christakis early in this who said, maybe it wasn't him, he, he, he certainly started to say it, but you know, no, we shouldn't be social distancing, we should be physical distancing. And it's really hard to do the one without the other, um, but it's even harder when you can't see people's faces. Right. So the problem is we could outline, we could sketch the, uh, there's got to be a better word than smart, but the smart position in mm -hmm. which you pay as little cost as you have to for masks, but you get the benefit, right? Yeah. You want the sweet spot of how much mask wearing to do and where is it and how can you minimize your wearing of masks and still get 98% of the value of them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we can do that. But the problem is the game theory causes a social enforcement of a lie about the utility. And the same thing happens in vaccine space. So there are people mm -hmm. who will hear the discussion that we just had as somehow uh, heresy because it acknowledges the hazard of vaccines and acknowledges that in this case there's a special hazard that just comes from the fact that it hasn't been out very long, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there has to be a way for us to have a proper conversation. And one thing I would say is, again, in the vaccine case, both sides are stupid, right? Yeah. We have a safety system that can't possibly work because of the perverse incentives surrounding the economics of vaccine production, right? Mm -hmm. They're more dangerous than they need to be because there's a perverse incentive surrounding the hazard, right? Mm -hmm. That means that we are, in a, we are in a thoroughly compromised position when it comes to the game theory and saying to people, you know what? They're not totally safe. Right. We've made them as safe as they can be, right? We, here's, here's how you know that they're as safe as they can be without mm -hmm. being perfectly safe. And you need to take your share of the risk along with the rest of us so that we can get the collective benefit of us being immune and frankly driving pathogens out of existence or to very low levels that comes from wide compliance with these things. But unfortunately, those of us who, you know, I think vaccines are one of the most powerful inventions humanity has ever come up with. But I cannot just be a, uh, a booster for vaccines. That's a terrible term. Vaccine booster? No. <laughs> I cannot be a cheerleader mm -hmm. for vaccines given the economic model and the way it compromises safety. I have to be in this camp where, you know, I'm constantly getting beaten up because uh, people want me to tell the public these things are safe and right. you're, you know, you're right. a conspiracy theorist for believing they might not be. Well, you and I agree about um, some of the, basically the top... Uh, developmental discoveries of Western medicine being vaccines and antibiotics, and then also several surgical techniques. And that a whole lot of the rest of what is going on um, has has been done better in a lot of cases by other other traditions, actually. Um, but In part by interfering less with physiology that we don't understand. Exactly. Or by, un by coming at it just from a different perspective and therefore being able to see, like with anamorphic art, something that you could not see from the uh, cut it or pill it um, attitude, which is increasingly what the Western medicine approach is. Um, but you know, to say that antibiotics are one of the great 
great discoveries slash creations of humankind does not suggest that they haven't been wildly overprescribed, aren't making us all sick, aren't making our cattle sick, and therefore the people that eat those cattle sick and the people who drink the milk and like all of these things are also true. So it does to say that it's one of the great inventions of humankind does not mean that you think it's all good all the time. So I will also say that um, I think you've you've waded into this a little bit more than I have, so you've gotten more pushback than I have. Um, but you know, the idea that you are some sort of a vaccine denier or an anti-vaxxer, um, our family is probably far more vaccinated than just about anyone watching because of where we've traveled, yep. right? And um, when our kids were very young, I started pushing for us to take them places, and you, I think, correctly said, "Nope, not yet," um, because it, because the drugs that we need to give them to keep them safe to travel in some of these places are not safe for them when they're that young. Yeah. The longer you wait through development, the less harm, given an amount of harm done by a drug or a vaccine, the later it comes in development, the less damaging it is. Exactly. And so um, at the point that we did start traveling to really far-flung places like, like the Amazon with them, which would have been when they were, what, like 11 and 9 maybe, something like that. Um, we were able to give them, not with perfect safety, but things like the yellow fever vaccine, which is actually like required by law, but also we would have done had, had we gone there because it has been around for a long time. Yellow fever is one of these mosquito vector diseases that is deadly, that has wiped out whole populations. Uh, and furthermore, in that case, I also feel it is our responsibility not just to keep us safe, but to go into a place where you are traveling into a place where other people don't travel between if there's any chance that you could bring a disease in, that is, that's not an acceptable risk to, to bring to the people who already live there. However, we, none of us have ever gotten the cholera vaccine because the cholera vaccine, while it's also been around for a while, is understood not to have its, I don't remember the numbers, um, something like 30 to 40% efficacy. Yeah. And it's not particularly dangerous, but all vaccines bring with them some risk. And the fact is that the cure for cholera largely, especially for um, you know comparatively wealthy people, Norte Americanos, uh, is um, to have access to clean water, which um, we would always be able to have access to. And so we make these decisions one by one, yep. right? Uh, and, you know, I have been wanting a malaria vaccine since we began traveling uh, to Latin America you know, decades ago at this point. But that doesn't mean that as soon as one shows up, it's right away the moment to to take it. Because I've also gone through, what, four different kinds of malaria prophylaxis, one of which is completely horrifying, and I hope never to be on something like that again. So you know, you 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 have to be able to look at the options before you and say, who who do I trust? Who knows more about this than I do? And what are they saying? And also, how is it that I can rely on my own knowledge and make decisions for myself? That said, public health is a different kind of analysis, which is where you started here. Right. And so I think the the bottom line. Well, there are two bottom lines. One, when it comes to things like medicine. Uh, there's a, a an analog to the principle that the government that governs best governs least, which does mm -hmm. not mean actually least. It means least necessary to do the job. Mm -hmm. That the medicine that functions best functions least. That the, our tendency mm -hmm. to want to interfere in a system always comes with side effects. And to the extent that there are interventions that reduce the uh, intensity of the intervention, they tend to be far better. 
Sure. With, so but you know, but once if you're looking for a vaccine, you're already in an arms race, right? So a vaccine is inherently sort of a combative property uh, that is going to do some 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 war somewhere on some part of hopefully most of the pathogen you're trying to combat, but also presumably your body. Right. And you know, what is the effect of, you know, if one vaccine is great, is there or do we really imagine there's no cost to just vaccinating you to everything that we can uh, possibly create a vaccine for, or mm -hmm. is there some cumulative cost? I don't think we know the answer to these questions. Um, so anyway, one of the one of the lessons here is about medicine mm -hmm. and uh, a non-interventionist bent, just as you want a light hand in government, a light hand in medicine saves you from all of the things you didn't know about the system you were interfering with. Um, the other one has to do with the game theory. And frankly, my I'm sick and tired of being shouted at by people who don't want me to say the truth because they're afraid it will cause people to tune into the game theory and not participate in something like vaccines. My point is, no, there's actually no way around the adult discussion here, which involves owning up to the fact that the system isn't nearly as safe as it might be. And that basically there are two sides to this contract. If we're going to get, if we're going to belittle people and maybe mm -hmm. require them to take vaccines, we have an absolute obligation to make these things as safe as possible first, right? Mm -hmm. There's no two ways about that. And so and, by just- And to speak with some nuance and to allow people the possibility of actually understanding what is going on. Because when you make broadcast claims like masks do not help or vaccines are 100% safe- you, of course, increase the distrust that people have and increase the non-compliance that people have with with these rules. Because yep. some of them are clearly political and lies. And, um, you know, we, we really, really hope uh, that, vac you know, this or many multiple vaccines that get produced uh, are, not, are not built on lies. But on what basis are we supposed to trust a political pronouncement about this at this point? Right. The whole landscape of discussion discussion that masquerades as analytical has been politicized to the point that we are now unable to talk about even the basics of how we are to interact with each other or how we are to protect ourselves from threats that we all face. Yeah. And, you know, um, whatever process it is that allowed that to happen has put us in very serious jeopardy and we have to, to counteract it. And this, um, this actually, we, we've already been a number of the places that we were, we were hoping to go. We wanted to talk about whether or not there are questions that should not be asked and topics that should not be approached. And I was reminded that we, when we were in grad school, we had a professor um, who, you know, actually, and this is somewhat relevant, was of a somewhat Marxist bent, um, who told us uh, when we were in the field with him at some point that there were questions that should not be asked for fear that the answers would be ugly or not good for society. And, um, you know, we were in grad school in biology, and he was a biology professor, and I thought, that seems like an extraordinarily anti-scientific uh, approach, and I'm frankly shocked that a scientist would advise other, you know, burgeoning scientists um, that they need to stay away from certain questions uh, because uh, because the truth might imprison you is effectively what the message is, right? Yep. The truth will not set you free in his worldview. The truth might imprison you, and therefore we need to protect everyone from it. So you know, it's. It, it's hard to know whether or not there is actually some place where that principle that he was espousing is correct. Yep. Um, I'm not certain that there isn't, but what I am certain of is that just as with uh, the case of 
you know, free speech and things along these lines, we have an absolute obligation to leave everything on the table until there is a very compelling reason that something can't be on the table because you will rule out all kinds of important stuff. The natural process of progress requires us to be able to discuss all sorts of things and throw them out. And um, Well, and I will say that um, asking the questions is different from throwing technology at it and trying to develop new things, right? Like they're, right. They're, oh, we're, yeah. we're in a very different territory when we're, for instance, talking about whether or not cloning humans might be a good idea, as opposed to starting down a path to cloning without having actually really thought through, you know, had all those conversations a lot of times with a lot of different people. Right. Asking a question <clears throat> is not the same thing as engaging in work that modifies things. And the right. number of places, you know... Should you work on ice nine if you uh, discover a way that you might create such a thing? You know, this is von, a Vonnegut reference. Yeah, right? Vonnegut reference to, if I recall correctly, a, a molecule that causes um, w liquid water to turn solid yeah. upon contact. I don't remember and, which book. Um, you know, or yeah, geez, should you should you get involved in gain of function research on coronaviruses that enhances the uh, infectiousness and uh, lethality of these things to study the you know the pathology and epidemiology of these diseases? That's that, you know the entire population of the world should not get to be in on those conversations. But there should be a lot of conversations involving not just the researchers who stand to gain, but including, for instance, bioethicists and, and such. Well, I want to back you off that a little bit. I think I know okay. what you mean, right? Mm -hmm. The entire world doesn't get to sit at the table and discuss the reasonableness of this, but we need to have a body that is free from corruption that discusses right. whether or not the benefit is worth the unknown risk of engaging in these kinds. Representative democracy at in more domains than it currently is. Right. So, all right. Um, and, um, you know, with regard, we were, with regard to topics that should not be approached and questions that should not be asked... Um, you were dragged, and I, you know, I don't, there's a lot of places here that we want to go still, but you, you were dragged for, uh, presumably giving fuel to Trump's fire, uh, by talking about the possibility of election fraud, which we talked about a little bit last week too. And actually last week, um, you, you had seen nothing to suggest that anything was going on. I'd had this sense of like, oh, I'm just not, I don't know. It just, this doesn't feel right to me. And I don't really know where, where you land at this point. And regardless of what either of us think, it doesn't change what's true. Yeah. Well, so I saw a mathematical analysis that I found uh, difficult to falsify mm -hmm. that suggested anomalies that were certainly, you know, so I think I did a pretty good job. I pointed to this analysis mm -hmm. and I said, I don't spot the analytical flaw here. I ran it by uh, four mathematically sophisticated people. And I said, do you see anything here that I don't see? Mm -hmm. um, I should point out because people will assume Eric was one of them. He wasn't uh, mm -hmm. just to preserve his independence. But anyway, uh, I ran it by people. Nobody spotted a flaw. And so I released it carefully. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't spot a flaw. If there is one, I'll be glad to see it. But until I know that there's a flaw, um, I, I think this is worth looking at. Mm -hmm. Somebody who was not the least bit decent about it, um, did an analysis that I found difficult to understand. But when I finally did understand it, did falsify the evidence that seemed to be contained in the anomalies in the first analysis. And so I put that out. I appended it to each of the places that I had 
talked about this analysis that raised the question. Mm -hmm. And I said, yep, this does appear to account for it uh, on the basis of a rounding error. So it's not evidence. Um, but the blowback from doing this was uh, spectacular. Mm -hmm. And the number of people who considered it some kind of heresy or sin or something mm -hmm. was amazing. And you know, you're not allowed to ask those questions. Yeah, it's again. Stay in your lane. It's not even. It's not even your lane. It is. Yeah, and this. Well, stay well. away from analysis. This is not a place for analysis. And the more I think about it, mm. so ah, there are there are some there are some places that whatever your lane is, you're not allowed to go. Irrespective of what the truth is, don't you dare raise those questions in public. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is, who the hell are you to decide this? And if mm -hmm. you're going to decide such things. You have an absolute obligation, even though I will oppose you for deciding them, you have an absolute obligation to be even-handed about them, right? Mm -hmm. How much crap did we get dragged through over Russiagate and supposed collusion between the Trump administration and uh, the Russian government, mm -hmm. right, which came to nothing, right? This was apparently perfectly reasonable to be discussed on the front page of the New York Times, right? But if it's the other side, you can't even ask the question, even though... There are literally trillions of dollars at stake in an American presidential election, right? That is a huge amount of incentive for right. bad behavior. What's more, in this case, the presidential election on both sides, the candidate was understood by people on the other side to be an existential threat, mm -hmm. right? That's another whole layer of incentive. So, and by a small number of us, they both were. Right, exactly. <laughs> so at some level... You're just dumb not to consider the possibility of collusion in an American presidential election, which doesn't mean that you have evidence for it. Yep. I would further point out to complicate things, all American presidential elections are now stolen. Mostly it's legal. But the point is we've all just gotten so used to the idea that these massive corrupting influences have some right to play a role in our process and that that directly affects who we end up electing. Mm -hmm. Yes, it happens subtly because it's very often in the primaries that the skullduggery happens and then maybe we get to vote like normal people, members of a democracy in the general election. But come on, there is so much going on in these elections that has nothing to do with the consent of the governed that asking whether or it has extended into a new realm is it's our obligation, frankly. Yeah, I would I would push back a little bit on identifying the things that you just identified as evidence of stolen elections. You know, we, we have we have talked before, I think, on air about the role that uh, social media and indeed the mainstream media have on affecting what people see and what people think and whether or not that is effectively a kind of election tampering and might we therefore call such elections that are downstream of that uh, stolen in some regard. Uh, maybe, but I think we need to be I think we need to be careful using the strongest words uh, when when this is what we're talking about. I accept that. I accept that. But um, I will say, you know, a lot has happened as a result of the attempts to unearth this process. Yeah. Even just the recognition, and I was looking uh, at the Wikipedia entry on WikiLeaks, actually, and reminded that, um, you know, what spilled out of the DNC in 2016 revealed effectively that the DNC had systematically uh, 
sabotaged, opposed, used all kinds of mechanisms to oppose Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. uh, getting the nomination, mm -hmm. and they succeeded in preventing it from happening. And, you know, okay, so I, th I think the point is, when you say influence peddling, and people say, well, what do you mean? What, you know, well, there's influence peddling. It's obvious that people, this is a pay-for-play system. The fact that it's not illegal doesn't mean it's not influence peddling. The fact that the, you know, what the DNC argued in court about the sabotage of Bernie Sanders was not that it didn't happen, but that they had the right to. It was their party, right? So if that's the world we're living in, let's mm -hmm. just at least be honest yeah. about the fact that that's the world we're living in. No, exactly. And, and I think, I don't know what they actually said, so attributing... Um, to them, the words that you just said they said isn't quite fair, but they do feel like it's their party, not our party. Well, right? not his party. Not not well. Put that aside. Their party, not our party. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it's it's not it's not actually about all of the people who are registered as whatever party it is. Um, it is it is about the people in power who are making policy for the rest of us. And this actually, you know, this 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 brings up. A question of ideology and what makes a person an ideologue, which I thought I think we want to go to a little bit here. Um, but let's see. Um, I think we've basically talked about. <clears throat> well, let, let's spend a little bit more time first on this this really nasty little put down that happens, which is stay in your lane, and how you know you and I both have been saying for I think decades at this point, no, will not. You've defined the lane. Even if it's a real lane in the first place, uh, there's a good chance that um, I have insight into a whole bunch of these other lanes. And even if I don't, I'm still allowed to go there. And uh, you know, one of the things that is true as evolutionary biologists is that aside from rocks and quarks and a few other abiotic things, it's kind of all our lane anyway. Uh, so that is that is one thing that I'm going to claim here. But it's just regardless of who who you are receiving the advice that you need to stay on your in your lane. It's a cheap shot. Um, it works as censorship. It's a tool to to silence you. It works to silo people and thus further make the problem of you know, there's going to have to be more and more policing of staying in the lane. Uh, it establishes the role of authorities to dictate from on high to the plebes who are supposed to just receive it and accept it, whatever it is. Maybe it's the DNC, maybe it's the RNC, maybe it's the religious authorities, whoever it is. Um, and I think most interestingly, and what we can what we can add most uniquely here is that it misses one of the core tensions and brilliances of what it is to be human, which is that we are simultaneously generalists and specialists. Right, and so this is this is something you've been talking about for for many many years, and and to some degree I have as well, and it's one of the the central themes of of the book that we are writing, um, which is that humans are the most generalist species on Earth, uh, and yet individually many of us are such specialists that we far outstrip any individual in any given in any other species in terms of our ability to do a particular thing so how is it that we can be both most generalist and most specialist well it's it's that way by being specialist at the individual level and generalist at the population level which therefore reminds us that we actually need to be with one another we 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 all can um, aspire to be more generalist within ourselves individually, but also to be with other human beings with whom we connect and therefore increase our command, our wealth of understanding and wisdom in the world. Yes. And uh, not to put too fine a point on it, the 
fraction of human well-being that is ultimately traceable to somebody not staying in their lane is so large that anybody who wants to impose this rule now, whatever a lane may be that you should stay in it, is obviously foregoing a huge amount of progress that might occur going forward. And so screw them. Yeah, you know? yeah it's probably not fair, but you know, we could we could pretty quickly start naming people throughout history who didn't stay in their lane and Leonardo da Vinci seems to come right to the top. Yeah. You know, any anyone who's ever gone to a uh uh, a, a art installation, a museum installation uh, that just just simply portrays some tiny fraction of what that man did. It's extraordinary, and the fact is, um, you know, just to take two things that are often described as sort of polar opposites, at least within academia, art and science need one another, and they thrive from one another, and they build on one another. And um, so many of the best scientists have had some kind of artistic passion um, or, you know, or craft passion or building passion, some, something that gave them a totally different road in, a totally different lens, angle, whatever it is, in to how it is that they observe the world. Yeah. I'm imagining actually a, uh, a wonderful graphic, you know, uh, somehow my lane right and you can imagine a lane like f going fractal in some sort of psychedelic explosion <laughs> of whatever of chaos yeah, yeah. Um, and you know i don't i don't invoke idw hardly ever but not staying in your lane yeah that, that's what it's about that was right its, lane. it's it's pursuing truth and ideas wherever they lead wherever they lead that's what it's supposed to be about and um so you know super interesting whenever it happens um but especially now in light of the ever more siloing, contentious, nasty conversations that people seem to be willing to have, especially online, but I suspect in, in person too, you know, safely behind their masks. Yeah. Um, no, let us, let us remember that we are all human and that there will be something to disagree with in the opinions and thoughts of every single other human on the planet. And, for almost everyone, you can probably find some things to dis to agree with as well. So I wanted to add a, a final thing that I've been thinking this week, watching people react to various people leaving their lanes, including me and all of that. Um, and there's a, I think there's just a basic failure in people's model of how to think carefully. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of us have understood now that there is no reliable neutral source on a lot of things. And many people have talked about their methods for dealing with that, involving having two sources open and moving between them in order that they can correct for the distortions on both sides. Mm -hmm. But there's also a human analog to this, right? I would say we are now watching a, uh, a social dynamic unfold where many people are understood to be losing their minds. And the accusation that an individual person has finally lost their mind is now commonplace. Now, I don't want to claim that this is all nonsense. I see people out there that I believe are losing their minds. And in fact, right. um, Greg Lukianoff had a thread today on Twitter in which he took a particular account. A, I think the person's identity is known, but the account is anonymous, the Pope had account. He took him to task for um, basically uh, belittling 
concerns about cancellation and being driven out of a newspaper or university or whatever. Um, and so anyway. Prompted by the most recent move of Matty Iglesias from Vox and earlier Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan and Matt Taibbi and you know, Glenn Greenwald. Greenwald, and, yeah. Right. Um, and so anyway, there's a question. I, I would just say, look, if I, if I follow somebody, right, if I'm paying attention to their work, and then they suddenly say something that I know to be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I know they've just said something that doesn't make any goddamn sense. My first thought is not up. Oh, they've finally lost their mind. My first thought is, I wonder if there's something I don't see in that place. What don't I understand? As opposed to, how dare you, sir? R right, how dare you, sir? Exactly. And I, I don't, I don't understand when it comes at me, and it's like, oh. You know, yeah, I used to respect Weinstein, but he's lost it now. Mm -hmm. I feel like, Jesus, if I've built up credibility with you and then I say something that you find bizarre, just take a minute and think about whether or not I see something you don't. And it may be that I don't. But um, yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, so you do this. You, I, a number of people do this. And it, it you reveal in so doing that you're not controllable. Right. Um, and some people are going to show up to tell you that they're disappointed in you and that they, that they used to have respect for you, but now they don't, or they, you know, something must have happened. Are you, are you feeling quite okay? Right. Uh, and it's, it's quite possible and it certainly has happened and it will happen again that you or I, whoever it is, uh, has aired. Right. Of yeah. course. But it's also quite possible and quite common you are finding this week, um, for the person lobbing this critique to have slotted you into a category right? Um, Democrat, environmentalist, fascist, you know, whatever the category is, right. uh, which is actually more constraining than clarifying. Even if it's if it's a category like Democrat or environmentalist, one which you might you know, own yourself, or, or if it's one like fascist, one that is just lobbed at you and the people are just hoping some of it will stick. Um, but regardless, it's a categorization. And the idea that people are carrying around these categories, like they're not engaging you or me or whatever, and this is far easier on social media than it would be in real life, as, oh, well, th that's this guy and he's got these eight labels in my head. Wait, he just said something that tick, 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 doesn't match any of those labels. Therefore, he's lost it. Like, no, maybe it's a literally a category error. Right. Like m maybe your category is flawed or maybe... Fitting a category is itself a sign of an ideologue. Like this is what ideologues are. It's it's people who, you know, and and this is in service of, you know, the easiest examples are religions and political parties, right? Like yep. we have a slate of beliefs or <clears throat> a slate of planks that create a whole wealth of identity for you. And yep. if you just accept it, if you just accept everything here, you will find it easier to move your, through your life because you can find the people with, with whom you won't have to be in contentious arguments and you will find a community, <clears throat> maybe you'll find a, a, a partner, maybe you'll find friends. It's all very easy. And for those of us who for, you know, there, there are a number of ways that you can arrive at going, actually, I'm going to... It's going to take longer, but I'm going to try to do the first principles thing as much as possible and actually not just accept that because I'm a Democrat, I'm therefore um, interested in all gun regulation ever, for instance, just, just yep. to pick an easy one. Um, <clears throat> it confounds people. And they respond by saying, how, you know, how dare you, sir? You must have really lost it. Like, actually, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. 
But what I'm doing is trying to figure out what I believe, given what the evidence is in front of me. I am not trying to conform to a category. I am not trying to conform to the thing that you already had in your head about me. That's not my job, and right. it shouldn't be what you're trying to do so, with me. In some sense, they are using a heuristic. How to spot an insane person, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And that's their problem. If you're using first principles yes. and it causes you to fall out somewhere different than whatever their group is doing, yeah. and they're using a heuristic to quickly spot crazy people, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not on you, right. right? Right. And in fact, you know, there are a couple yeah. of good examples of this. I I, I want to be careful here because I haven't followed what Majid is up to so closely, mm -hmm. but a lot of people are worried about Majid. And mm -hmm. I think because he appears to have come out in favor of Trump, although... He's not an American, but, you know, mm -hmm. online. But on the other hand, if you follow so him... I don't, I don't know. I mean, Majid, we, we, we had a wonderful dinner with him uh, a while ago, but I, I don't know anything about the modern controversy. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that there are lots of cocktail parties in which anybody who uh, has so much as flirted with the possibility that either the blue side was so horrible or that the red side wasn't that bad is obviously a nut. <laughs> and um, the problem, you know, in Majid's case, you asked the question, all right, I respect Majid. I know him, right? He's saying something. This that's, is Majid Nawaz. Yeah, for, Majid yeah. Nawaz. Mm -hmm. How could a guy that smart and that tuned in get to this position? It's actually not that hard. The mm -hmm. guy was recently on hunger strike uh, to get the British Parliament to debate the question of the Uyghurs in China, right? right? So if you're Majid... Dude feels strongly about real stuff, and he thinks it through. And what kind of real stuff? The kind of stuff we tell ourselves that we would all do the right thing in the case, right? Mm -hmm. We've got, you know, effective concentration camps. We have organ harvesting, really appalling stuff, right? He's committed enough mm -hmm. to dealing with this that he goes on hunger strike. And so if you believe, as many people do, in fact, I think there's a very strong argument to be made for it, that Trump is better on China than uh, Democratic administrations have been, that they've been a bit blind to the hazard of China, mm -hmm. then, okay, you can see how Majid would end up there. Or Yeah. Oh, in, yeah, actually, it hadn't occurred to me that it's internally consistent with, with his last big public thing. Yep. yep. I don't know whether that's what happened, yeah. but I do mm -hmm. know that it's not hard to figure out how a reasonable, how, without losing his mind, Majid could find himself there, right? Yeah. Um, likewise, James Lindsay, right? James Lindsay has taken a ton of flack from people over his support for Trump. But if you listen to him, his point is, look, I hate this, but I'm concerned about the danger of wokeness toppling institutions that we're dependent on. Mm -hmm. So if you believe as he does, it's not hard to see how you would end up there. And all I would say is, look, high quality thinking involves yeah. not using some heuristic and deciding people are crazy because they happen to have reached a different conclusion that you regard as crazy. You have to figure out whether there's some first principles way they might have gotten there. And, uh, you know, do you know more about uh, the about Chinese abuse of the Uyghurs and the effect of different administrations uh, in the U.S. on uh, the power of China in, in this case? Well, if you, do, if you don't know more than Majid, then, you know, at least you have to give him the benefit of the doubt that he has arrived at a reasonable conclusion given his priors. That's right. And um, it seems, in fact, to be consistent, right, uh, what, what, he, what he is doing, given the argument that you just laid out. And I know you, you know, I, I was blissfully mostly not online this week, um, but I know you to be consistent. And, you know, and that doesn't mean that you don't see new evidence and change your mind, but you are consistent in your application of, of, you know, care and rigor in assessing what's coming in. And you, and you, God, you, you're more than 
I think anyone else I know, just constantly going back through and testing the assumptions that the decision tree is based on, that the assumption that the, you know, that the idea tree is based on. Um, you know, I, the little bit of being online this week that, that I had uh, involved in part running into this crazy, um, this crazy pronouncement from the UK government uh, that yeah, basically, I'm not going to pull it up here, but um, all you have to do is read the three-step pronouncement and you basically arrive at uh, sex is based on chromosomes and hormones. Like, no, actually, it's gametes, but forget that. Sex is based on chromosomes and hormones. And oh, by the way, sex is assigned at birth. Uh, it doesn't take very much logic to conclude that the government of the United Kingdom thinks that chromosomes and hormones are assigned at birth. And, um, you know, this this is... Um, you know, no harm intended to or meant ever to actual trans people, but this is trans rights activism. This is the loony, horrifying, dangerous fringe of trans rights activists who are taking over the entire conversation um, that has now gotten to the UK government and so many other places. And, you know, I, I tweeted a few things about this and, um, a, you know, from from various angles, but um, in part, you know, I, f I feel totally okay mocking a government. I don't I don't tend to want to mock an individual unless they unless they push me repeatedly in a particularly stupid way. But um, I saw a little bit of conversation suggesting that I and actually I think you were named too in the discussion of this um, that we were on this topic meaning, as I understand it, basically um, the biology of sex, were ideologues. Mm. And I thought, well, I thought of that Princess Bride um, quote. You know, I, don't, I don't think you know what that term means, right? Um, but I also thought, okay, my God, like how do you even get there? How do you even get from like – not only am I firmly in my lane, you know, evolution right. of sex is like what I've been doing for, for, for decades now. Um, but the consistency here in my position is what has now gotten me labeled an ideologue. So I just went through like, okay, what, do, what can consistency in an argument indicate? Right? Like, let's just, right. let's just walk through it. So consistency in opinion over time can mean that you've actually, you originally investigated it from first principles as much as possible, hopefully, and you continue to investigate investigate the question and you continue to feel that your original position was correct. That's one way that you can end up consistent in an argument, right? Um, it might be that you did originally investigate it, but then you sort of went like set and forget. I'm not going to continue to think about that. I know what I once thought. I must still think that. In which case your consistency over time actually holds no information as to what you really think. That doesn't make you an ideologue inherently, but it does mean that you should feel less and less certain of your stated opinion the longer it's been since you've gone back to it and reconsidered what new evidence there might be. So that's a second reason, a second way that you can reveal consistency and what it can mean. And then a third one I would say is that you never thought it through for yourself in the first place, right? Mm. You simply accepted the conclusions of, for instance, oh, a political party or a religion or whatever. And in that case, that provides no evidence at all as to whether or not you believe the thing. And guess what? In that case, there's a good chance you're an ideologue. But that's one of three categories of how it is that you might end up consistent on a point and always defaulting or, you know, when people default to, well... Boy, you keep banging this drum. This is a point that you've made over and over again. You must be an ideologue. That's really impoverished thinking. That's like really bad logic. It's the same damn thing. It's somebody yeah. applying their heuristic, 
you know, if you've got three routes to consistency and your heuristic is in general, when people are this consistent, it's because they've, there's an ideology driving them, yeah. then it's your heuristic that's at fault, not the person who's being consistent. Right. Right. Which doesn't mean the heuristic doesn't work a lot of the time. It sure. probably does. That's why you have it. But, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, there, there, I think if there's a, like a nugget here to be derived, it's okay. If you've learned that the way you're going to figure out or the way you're going to correct for the bias in media is you're going to have two opposing bits of media facing each other and use each to correct for the other. Mm -hmm. There's another way to do it that involves people, right? If you follow somebody, mm -hmm. right? And I would argue that one of the yep. ways to recognize somebody who is not an ideologue, right? Is A, that their belief structure does not match anybody's slate, right? They are dining a la carte because they are arriving at conclusions independently based on first principles, which will result in an eclectic mix of conclusions. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, how well do they reverse course when they are revealed to be wrong, right? Mm. Right. If somebody is not good at that, that's a red flag. If somebody is good at that, that suggests, well, actually, you can afford to put your weight on the ice. So, you know, just as you have the two sources you might go to to correct, you might have a small slate of people that you actually trust enough that when yeah. they come to a conclusion that seems batshit crazy from where you're coming from, it doesn't cause you to declare them batshit crazy, but it makes <laughs> you think, well, what do they see that I don't? Right. Right? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's terrific. Yeah. Uh, so, well, there's many more places we could go, uh, or we could stop here. Well, I have one thing I, I want to talk about because okay. I have a sense that it's timely and it, you know, I don't know how long it lasts. Okay. Uh, Next week, then, we'll talk about whether or not women were big game hunters in uh, pre-Columbian Americas. How big were they? No. That's <laughs> a terrible joke. Um, uh, so the, what I wanted to talk about is um, this thing, Clubhouse, which you have... I think you are technically on it, but you haven't been there. Yeah, yeah, I have it on my phone. I've been invited, but I've never, I never visited. Yeah, so I, so I want have to define what it is. Yeah, first. Clubhouse is a new social media platform that has emerged. I don't know how old it is, and frankly, I don't know how many people are on it. It still seems quite small mm -hmm. on the inside, which could be an optical illusion or not. But anyway, it's created a lot of buzz in Silicon Valley. There are lots of Silicon Valley types on it. And just the basics of it. Um, actually, Zach, did I send you a screenshot of it? Yeah. Okay. So this is like a room inside of Clubhouse. Um, this is from this morning. And it involves, so the key thing to this social media platform is there's effectively no text other than your profile and your name. Everything is done uh, by speaking. And it's not um, recorded, so it's totally in the moment. It is totally in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's always a danger that somebody will record it, but right. no, it's but not. But you can't go and, sort and of scroll through, listen to past conversations. Right. Yeah. So it's ephemeral by mm -hmm. nature. It is conversational. It's audio Snapchat. Yeah. And it mixes people in a way that I'm finding very unusual for the moment. Okay. Um, so there are some ideological lines inside of Clubhouse, but at least until yesterday, you saw all of the public rooms that were available 
they have titles, which may or may not be all that indicative of what's going on in there. And you saw some indication of who was in the room and you could just drop in and listen. Um, and so the idea is that you can go into any room you want, but you have to be invited to have a voice in that room? Yes, okay. that's correct. Um, and so the person who starts it and whoever they designate as moderators can invite you on stage, or if you want to come on stage and you haven't been invited, you can raise your hand and they can bring you up, but you cannot put yourself you on the stage. You can't walk in and just start yelling. Right. Um, so anyway, the... Uh, I think there are a couple things that are going on here. One, so far, I don't think the thing has a business model. It's still in the generating buzz phase, right? Which is a very interesting phase because it doesn't have the constraints that come along with the economics of the model. So it's still lively and nobody knows what it is and we're all learning the rules and that sort of thing. Um, so it's more dynamic than it might otherwise um, be. But uh, so there's, a, there's also a lot at stake and people... Um, I don't know how people, you can invite two people if you're in, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and then people who were there at the founding presumably invited a lot of people in, but people don't necessarily know who everybody is. It's not necessarily clear from profile. So there is a lot of mixing going on in this app, you know, across huge, you know, orders of magnitude in terms of economic status. Um, education is widely variable. Um, there's a very strong black contingent in Clubhouse. Some of that uh, is, you know, consequential in the sense that there are rooms that are explicitly labeled as black, and they uh, often have a very different culture than other parts of Clubhouse. But anyway, it's. Um, I think it is going to ultimately collapse into another version of all of the things that we already have mm -hmm. because in some sense it's going to face the same selective pressure where the desire to you know in competition with other social media sites it's going to have to feed people um, that which will keep them coming back spending time and that is going to involve, I believe, unless they are very, very careful, it is going to involve reinforcing people's existing beliefs. In other words, we haven't yet seen filter bubbles emerge in a powerful way there, but as soon as the economics kick in, it's going to be there with a vengeance. And I think, I think you have not yet said that you saw what you think is the first pivot point in this yesterday. Yes, the first pivot point. Well, I don't know because I came in at some moment. I don't even know how long it had been going. But the first pivot point that I saw and one that is very clearly a step in this direction is that the ability to see all of the public rooms disappeared yesterday. The update of the app caused it so that you would only see rooms, I think, with people that you follow. So, and it's not, you can't change that setting, you can't then also go scroll through all the public ones. So it's not, it can't really be argued as a, look, this doesn't scale. We have to be able to show people the top 30 or whatever. It's actually now completely blocked you from even seeing a bunch of what's going you on. You don't even know what you're missing. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I advocated yesterday in a room where this was being discussed, hey, we actually need the ability to override whatever's going on. Because for some of us, it's not even that, you know, if you follow a wide range of people, then it broadens the scope of things that you see. We actually need to find the room that is most opposite to the one we would be expected to be in in order to tune into a conversation we need to know about that we can't find. Yeah. No, and, and given, that, um, given that you can't, given that you have to be invited to speak, um, it, you don't, no one is at risk of having their conversation destroyed. 
right? Yeah, I, I think now, and I, there's there's a separate question. Never having been on this, um, you know, for me, privacy always rises pretty high in, yeah. in the rankings. And you know, I would if if I were going to end up using this, I'd probably want to be able to have a private room where I invited eight people or sure. whatever, right? Um, although in that case, how is it different from a phone call, right? Right, um, but. The, you know, the option for privacy is quite different from not being able to see, um, to, to see and choose to go into all of these rooms. And, you know, I would say that even if there were private rooms, um, I would want the option to see, or that's, that's something that's happening. I can't see what's behind that door. Um, but all these other doors that I never would have been shown given the new filter on it. Um, yeah, most of them I don't want to go to, but, um, I want to know they're there. And I'd like to pop in and see sometimes to listen. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I want to point to two things. One, there is, um, on you know, people talk frequently about black Twitter. I feel like there's clearly a black clubhouse, but I've never heard the term used, mm -hmm. right? But it's there and you'll find rooms with, you know, sometimes a hundred people in which pretty much everybody's black. And these rooms, um, you know, there's an awful lot of black vernacular spoken and there's a lot of, you know, there are rooms in which the N word is every fifth word, right? People mm. are referring to other people with this term. It's very jarring, but it's also very interesting to be able to hear such a conversation, right? Wow. Um, so that's one thing that's going on. But what I saw happen yesterday and what I participated in yesterday um, to me was uh, quite singular. So there was a room yesterday that somebody started on the question of socialism, communism, and capitalism. That was the title of the room. And it was clear that the purpose of the room was to discuss the merits of these things. Um, and so I went in. I wanted to hear what this discussion was. First, I wanted to know if they were going to define these terms because um, that's a can of worms in and of itself. Um, but anyway, I went into the room and, you know, they were having a discussion you know, something you might expect, uh, you know, that you could hear on a college campus, for example. Mm -hmm. And I went on stage and I... Of course you did. I, <laughs> I couldn't resist. And I started um, pushing a little bit, you know, to see if I could get the conversation to shift. And people met me where I was, which was cool, mm -hmm. right? Now, this was a very diverse room. I don't know why, actually, but it had... Diverse in what way? It was diverse in every way, okay. right? So... Uh, there sex, sexual orientation, race, um, uh, religion. So, you know, there were, on stage, there was a Native American, there was a, uh, a Muslim, there were many blacks, several whites, male and female, gay and straight. Go ahead. Uh, I, I just want to asterisk object to the idea of sex being a category that is used in diversity because it's binary. And I'm not sure that a binary category is, um, qualifies as diverse. I feel like you have to have a category that has more than, more than two, two states. Um, okay. I accept. I'm not, you, uh, yeah. you're not the guy who did that. I'm just, whenever I hear that, I think, I'm not sure that's diversity anyway. In any case, this room went on for four hours, right? Okay. Very popular, big room, right? And people were very eager to speak. It had a kind of a hybrid culture, right? It wasn't the free-for-all that some find, you sometimes find in some of these rooms, and it wasn't, there's a, so there's a free-for-all culture where people have their, they're not on mute, and they just talk over each other like they're sitting at a, a, a 
dinner table, mm -hmm. right? And then there's another culture, which is sort of like the Silicon Valley uh, academic culture in which everybody's on mute and one person talks and then they go, you know, they might talk for three minutes and then they hit mute and then the next person jumps in and all of this. This was sort of a hybrid, which is interesting. But it emerges that there are some BLM guys in this room. Mm -hmm. Room was started by a, a black guy who uh, was um, moderating. Uh, he He had power to moderate and he moderated very well. In other words, he kept um, the conversation dynamic. So anyway, what I heard for the first time in a long time was a conversation that moved in the direction of race and power and politics and economics, but did not derail over all of the things that caused such conversations to fall apart in modern circumstances. So what I typically see mm -hmm. is either a conversation has many perspectives and it derails over accusations of who's defective in what way, or it's a bunch of people who have a similar perspective and it doesn't derail, but it's not all that generative because there's wide agreement over the conclusion, right? Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. was not that. And I think everybody felt about it that it was um, extremely positive and I guess my concern is that whatever is possible there now is going to fall apart as a result of the economics of the situation. Mm -hmm. I will say I tuned in this morning. There was another room on code switching, mm -hmm. right? A mixed room, black and white, and a discussion about the, the unwritten rules and civilizations surrounding dialects, code switching, you know, what it's like to be, for example, black and to speak black vernacular and to have white people attempt to do it. Anyway, another conversation that was very generative and didn't fall apart over the, um, the, the triggers that caused these conversations to be so difficult in modern times. So what I'm hoping mm -hmm. is that people begin to recognize that we've lost ground recently. We've lost the ability to discuss things we used to be able to talk about and that they miss it and that resurrecting that is highly valuable. So yeah. anyway, I think Clubhouse is still uh, in a closed beta. And so you have to find an invitation either from somebody who's in there or maybe you can email them. I don't know when that changes, but I would be very interested to see people who are excited about uh, finding those conversations join and reinforce the desire to have them because without them, I mean, we've seen just catastrophes uh, across social media and in the world. Yeah, well, actually, so I'd forgotten that I wanted to read just uh, two paragraphs from a letter we received, um, which I think that's a good segue. It's a little bit less hopeful than what you were seeing in, in Clubhouse, but um, from, from a different perspective. So this is dated November 1st. Um, and I'm just two, two paragraphs from this, from someone who, um, who wishes to remain anonymous. Last night, I went to the Trump rally in Butler, Pennsylvania which you can read about online. I originally declined to go because of fears of COVID-19 and because I'm not a particularly fervent Trump supporter. <clears throat> I'll vote for him, but I'm keenly aware of his many flaws. Yet in the end, I did go. And the letter writer talks about the various risks of COVID and how concerned he is and asks, why did a highly risk-averse person, why did a highly risk-averse person like me go? Two reasons. That morning, I took a walk with a very good friend. He said that he would consider going to the rally, but if a camera panned the crowd and someone from his workplace saw him, then his career at a quasi-federal agency would be ruined. 
This put into clear focus the dangers of the current cancel culture of which you frequently warn. I realize that we as a society face a risk of silence through intimidation. This is not the country that I love where people can express their beliefs, whether I or anyone else agrees with them or not. So I went to that rally for my friend and people like him as a small act of courage and defiance to defend the First Amendment. And it goes on, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop I'll stop there. I mean, he also ends up going for his son, um, for whom he wants to demonstrate um, some courage and um, and that he is willing to stand behind, you know, his beliefs. Which in this case, you know, he says, "I don't. I'm aware of the many flaws of the man, and I'm reluctantly voting for him." But I felt that it was important to go to this because many people can't because of fear of retribution. And so, what you're relating hearing in that room in Clubhouse, uh, a conversation that include, what did you say, um, race and economics and class and politics, maybe? I think I feel like that's not that's quite the four things. That's certainly true, but yeah. yeah. Um, seeing, seeing people not go off the rails and seeing the conversation itself not get derailed uh, is possibly the most hopeful thing I've heard in a while. Yes, the other thing which I think I'm failing to convey is how much it became clear amongst all these people who almost none of them know each other, right? Yeah. A kind of camaraderie breaks out because people realize that the room is feeling a sense of it's feeling emboldened, it's feeling relief, mm. it's, you know, it's bre it's breathing after holding its breath. And this is so powerful that I really, I don't know if there's anything that can be done to preserve it or to augment it, but if there can, I think it's important. Now that yeah. said, I will caution people, but it is very easy to waste time in Clubhouse as it is on all social media. Um, and it is also difficult to integrate with your life because unlike something that you can just passively read and type, you know, you're you know just as you don't want to be on the phone in a room with people who aren't part of the conversation it's disruptive so anyway yeah you were particularly thrown when the two of us were making dinner one night and you were you were on one of these things because you you were on your headphones I, like i was actually okay with it i was almost done but in general yeah when we're when we're in the kitchen together it just feels I'd weird. rather you not be in some world wherever right. it is some, you know, some, some virtual world. thing so yeah. anyway uh use with caution but if you can get in there and you know it also takes a bunch of hunting to figure out which rooms are generative but i've now seen good examples i've also seen people um use it for interesting novel purposes so it has not yet figured out what it is and that that makes it more interesting than than other such things so join us on our patreons where there's a Discord server that you can um, join for conversation as well, not audio, but text. Uh, we have a private Q&A once a month uh, for uh, Dark Horse members at my Patreon, and Brett has uh, more intimate conversations at his Patreon every month. We have a uh, clips channel now where you can find clips of various things, and we answer your questions in the second half of this show, as the vast majority of you already know. So um, put in a super chat. We are going to get a replacement for super chat online soon that doesn't involve going through the Google YouTube machine. Yes, um, and uh, early indications are that it will be vastly more awesome. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Vastly more awesome. But for now, we're doing super chat. Uh, so pose your super chat question either now or at the beginning of the next hour, and we'll be back in about 15 minutes to uh, answer your questions for about an hour. All right. Be well, everyone. <laughs>